The New Testament reading is taken from Revelation, chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Revelation, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good morning, folks. Hope you're doing well. Especially if you're gathered together in church this morning. I'm so glad you're getting the chance to do that. My only sadness is I'm not able to be there with you myself. We keep saying that these are strange times we're living in, but there have been some positives, haven't there? I wonder what some of the positives have been for you. For me, as well as not having to spend any money on petrol and haircuts, one of the great things I've enjoyed in lockdown is catching up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, well, where have you been these last few years? Essentially what I'm talking about is 23 interlocking superhero films. And I think the reason we love these films so much is because it doesn't matter what kind of trouble our heroes seem to be facing, the impossible situations they find themselves in, they somehow, some way, manage to overcome. How do they do it? Well, to be a superhero is to be blessed with superhuman gifts, isn't it? that makes them invulnerable to the sort of dangers that threaten us mere mortals. But folks, what if I was to tell you this morning that if you're a Christian, then you have just that same kind of invulnerability. 
which helps you overcome all the stresses and the strains, all the tyranny and the chaos of this world. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because so often it looks like Christians are, well, like our Marvel superheroes at the end of Avengers, Infinity War. I don't know if you've seen that film, but at the end, they are utterly, devastatingly, hopelessly defeated. And if you were to hop in a time machine and jump back uh, to the time uh, of this book of Revelation was written and, and see the early believers it was written to, you would think that about them as well. They were in such a state, they suffered terrible persecution just for following Christ. And these days too, it seems the same way for Christians around the world. It looks so often like we are losing, which is why God has given us this book to reassure us that if we put our hand in Jesus' hand, then we will overcome, we will be protected. And more than that, whatever life throws at us now, one day when Jesus returns, we will win. That is the big picture message of the book of Revelation. And we see it in smaller scale in this chapter we're looking at this morning. Last week, uh, we looked at the terrifying vision the Apostle John, who wrote this down for us, had of the very end of the world. As God brings the created order to a conclusion, rolling it up like a child's playmat. As we step into chapter 7, the very next words we read is, After this I saw. And what John saw next wasn't actually what happened next. It's actually a closer look at what has just taken place. It's kind of like the actual replays on Match of the Day. We quite often get this in Revelation as we're showing the same scene over and over again from a different camera angle. And we get this replay here so that we can answer the question posed at the end of chapter 6. Do you see it? For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, chapter 7 answers that question by telling us that God's people can. Firstly, because God's people are sealed. Verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now, these four winds are probably a different way of describing the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we saw at the start of chapter 6. We get that from the book of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah as he puts those two ideas together. And here it's like God is saying, these four horsemen will ride out like the wind on a fallen world in judgment. But they're being held back, do you notice? Why? What's well, in verse two. Let's read on. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The reason God is holding back this terrible judgment is so that he can place a seal 
on the foreheads of every one of his people. Seals were used for a number of things back in the ancient world, but, but most notably as a, a mark or a stamp of ownership. I think that's what's happening here. And most sensibly, this mark is the gift of God's Holy Spirit. We see this a number of times in the New Testament where the, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as the seal who guarantees our inheritance. God wants his people to know that whatever happens between now and that great day when God comes to bring us home, we will be kept safe because God has put his seal on us, his Holy Spirit in us, declaring that we are his. Some friends of mine lost their car keys a few years ago and they did whatever any of us would do in that kind of situation. They turned the whole house upside down searching for them. But when they started to go round and round in circles, looking in the same places again, they did what most of us would do again and, and gave up and waited for them to turn up. But they didn't, at least not for six months. At which point Tesco's phoned them up and said, we've got your car keys. And it seems that someone had found them and, and noticed that on the key ring, there was one of those Tesco club card uh, swipe tags. And so they'd handed them into the local store and the local store phoned up my friends. And it kind of makes you wonder what was going on in that intervening six months. The mind boggles, doesn't it? But the point is that they made their way home because of the seal, because of the mark that showed they belong to my friends. And that's what's going on here. In Revelation 7, the seal, if you are a Christian believer, guarantees you, not that you won't have trouble, not that you won't find difficulties in life. No, it's, it, it's something much bigger than that. The seal guarantees that whatever happens, God will bring you home. Life sometimes looks somewhat overwhelming, doesn't it? Some of us perhaps look around and we, we always see threat. There are challenges that seem insurmountable. Conversations or relationships, we're terrified to begin or, or, or attempt to even reach out and start to fix. There are issues that we dare not speak up about. Opportunities that overwhelm us. And so we live lives coloured by fear. But believers are sealed. We have nothing to fear, not really, not ultimately. Of course, bad things can happen to us. They happen to anyone. We could get cancer. We might lose friends or a job. We might become bereaved. And I don't want to belittle those things for a minute. But pull back the lens. See this bigger picture we're being given here. See that those things need to be viewed in the light of this backdrop of security in the face of the coming judgment of God. Do that and our fears might not loom quite so large in our eyes. God's people stand at the judgment, safe and secure, because they are sealed by him. And secondly, God's people are saved. Let's hop on to verse 9. 
After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And you see what they're doing? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This great multitude are almost certainly the same as the 144,000 mentioned in verses 4 to 8. I'm sorry, I haven't really got time to fully go into that and unpack that for us. But I think the point that is being made there is that to God, the number of people he is going to save is precise. It is an exact number. He knows the name of everyone. There is no person who is so unimportant, so small, so insignificant in the mind of God that they could be lost in a counting error. That's God's perspective. But then verse 9, which I just read, it goes all about match of the day again. After this, I looked, says John, and we get a human perspective on this number. Uh, and, and to John's eyes, it is a vast multitude that no one could possibly count. And I think we're getting this different camera angle here because we need to know that the new creation is not going to be some half empty disappointment. It is going to be full, thrillingly full. Not full like a sweaty metro carriage on a Saturday afternoon when you're on your way home back from shopping in town when the football's on. No, full like a party or a wedding where everyone you've invited comes. Full like a concert or a sports event where every seat in the venue is taken and the atmosphere is just crackling with electricity. And we need to see that heaven is not just full in terms of quantity, but quality too, of all kinds of different people, as it is a glorious, thriving riot of harmonious colours and languages and accents. We're going to look at, into that in, a, in greater detail next week. But the diversity of heaven is, is not a, a happy accident. It is right at the centre of God's great salvation plan. It matters to him. And so it really should matter to us too. And it's part of what will make heaven the greatest party in all history for everyone who is there. So how do you get to be there? Well, look again at the crowd in the middle of verse 9. They are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're wearing white robes because this symbols, symbolises purity and righteousness. And it's not that they are righteous. No, no. As we read on and we see in verse 14, the reason that their robes are white is because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> I know, I know, it sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Revelation is a, is a bit of a crazy book, but actually the symbolism is clear. If you want to stand in the right before a holy God, then there is only one way. It is only through the death of 
Jesus the Lamb on your behalf. It is only through the blood that he shed there on the cross. It is only him giving you his righteousness that you could possibly hope to stand in the presence in the very throne room of God, the creator of all things. And so they're standing there crying out, salvation belongs to our God. Not salvation belongs to us. They're not saying, oh, haven't we done so well to manage to get here all on our own efforts? No. They know. They don't deserve to be there. They know what they are. Dirty sinners, saved only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Only because of Jesus there. It's all his work. And they and we contribute nothing to it at all. Only our sin. And so the whole of heaven falls down before the throne and worships in verse 12. Do you see? Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, folks, I've been trying to capture what picture, what experience might um, get a sense of heaven being consumed by God's glory. And the only thing I can really cook up is the whole business of falling in love. Have you ever had that experience of absolutely falling so head over heels in love with somebody that, that you, well, as Kylie Minogue is saying, you can't get them out of your head. You're so besotted with them that you, you would delight just to have them phone you up and read the yellow pages out to you. In fact, you're so taken by them that other people look on and, and go, oh, come on, that's, that's a bit much. But, but to you, it seems the most natural thing in the world because you're in love. I'm not sure that quite gets close enough to describing what it will be like to worship God in heaven. And maybe that seems strange to you, that I would even attempt that analogy. But can I suggest that's probably because you haven't yet understood what Christ has really done for you. You haven't really meditated on the sheer wonder of the cross. You haven't yet recognised the depth of your sin, that it cost Christ, the Son of God, his very life to pay for your sins. So that you, through no deservingness of your own, could be offered forgiveness freely by him. But once you do know those things, once you see how Christ has so loved you, then it catches your heart and you wanna bow down in praise and love and adoration of him. Which brings me to our final point, which is that God's people are also serving. Have a look with me, will you, at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you know, can I just say that if you ever find yourself being interrogated by a celestial being, I really want to recommend to you John's approach here. <laughs> sir, you know, I mean, come on, why would you need me to tell you? You, you must know. 
And that doesn't work in any and every situation. I don't think it'll work in a job interview <laughs> or if you're on trial in a court of law. But it works a treat here for John, doesn't it? So, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Specifically, in the temple of God. Which, if you've read on in Revelation, might seem a bit strange. Because in Revelation chapter 21, John looks and he doesn't see a temple in the heavenly city. 14 chapters later, and are these folks already out of a job? No. In chapter 21, John says he doesn't see a temple in heaven because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The point being that God dominates life in eternity. God is its goal, its provider. All of life is shaped and driven and preoccupied by him. I'm not sure we totally get this. Those of us who call ourselves Christian believers, once we get beyond the orthodoxy of what we know we should say about heaven, I have a feeling that it might actually just be a bit of an anticlimax, a bit of a disappointment. I mean, sure, we know there's going to be loads of good stuff there, but the price we have to pay for that is having to join some celestial choir and sing and, and wear white nighties and wave palm branches about. I mean, come on, boring. But what we don't really get is that the fulfilment of all of our desires is actually to be caught up in worship of God forever. How do you and I do life? When we muddle our way through trying to desperately quench our spiritual thirst and our, our spiritual hunger with, with all kinds of things that, that never quite really do it. Why is that? Well, it's because what we're really searching for is what we were made for in the first place. God himself. And in heaven, we will finally get that. In heaven, he will be the, the crux, the centre of everything in our lives. And we will find our satisfaction in him. We will be complete Life will be complete because we are complete in him. And we will worship and adore him. Uh, and that will be infinitely more than enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And the strange thing is that as we worship him there, it, it won't be uh, like the ways that we work and we serve uh, here. As, as verses 16 and 17, they make it really, really clear that we will never grow hungry or thirsty again. We'll never tire or flag or get ill or, or bored. <laughs> we'll never lack for anything because he himself will be the place where we find rest and refreshment. And in him we will find that there's no longer any cause for tears. He will wipe away all of the tears. And we will never weep again. 
or if you're not the crying type, will never feel like weeping. I wonder how your life, how my life would be if we really grasp this reality of heaven now and lived it out. Will we believe in this reality? That if we trust in Christ, we are saved and we are sealed for it. And if you're not yet a believer, will you look into these things? Will you investigate them and check them out? Please do. For now though, let me pray for us as we think these things through. Let's pray together. Father God, we do confess before you that ah, for many of us, those things that we declare with our lips so often are much less or, or shape much less the way that our lives are day by day. So forgive us the faith professed, which is so often different to our lives lived. And we pray, Father, that you would take these great word pictures, these great promises of eternity, promised to us because of the blood of Jesus, take them and impress them upon us that we will be transformed by the hope that you have set before us. Amen.